Japan is a country known for many things. Among them, the land of the rising sun has historically been famous for its warriors. The samurai alongside the Greek Spartans are probably the world's most well-known ancient soldiers. Even today, Japan has a vigorous and shining martial arts legacy. And in February of 1990, two modern warriors arrived in Tokyo, ready for battle. But though the fight was in Japan, the combatants were Americans. On a fateful Sunday afternoon, a man named James Douglas entered an arena to face a champion who was undefeated. James had been trained to fight by his father, whose nickname was Dynamite. The man he was to face had defeated 37 consecutive opponents, 33 of which he had defeated by beating them until they couldn't stand. More frightening still, not only had this man never lost, he had never even been knocked down. Tens of thousands of spectators gathered to watch this champion defeat yet another challenger. Tonight, that unenvied opponent was James, who, like his father, had also earned a nickname, Buster. Even so, the audience gambled against him, and the odds that night were 42 to 1. And though his father was there, his mother was not. James's mother had died less than 20 days before the fight. But his mother was perhaps the only one who believed that James, not the champion, would be victorious. Indeed, she had already told her friends weeks before the fight that James would be the winner. When she had died, James was offered the chance to postpone the fight, but he refused. Instead, he trained, and when the night came, Buster Douglas went ten brutal rounds against the champion, something no one else had ever done. And so it was that the champion was knocked down, something no one else had ever done. And thus it came to pass that Mike Tyson was defeated, something no one else had ever done. Buster had to fight ten rounds to claim his victory, but in the eighth, he was pummeled to the ground and struggling to stand. In that pivotal moment, Buster said he got back up because he had a reason to get back up. He refused to let his mother's prophesied victory go unfulfilled. He wasn't fighting for himself, but for her. Nietzsche once said that he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Buster Douglas won that night, not because he was bigger and stronger, but because his why was. I'm Dean Delp, and welcome to the Modernist Monastery.
The religions of the world are often very different, but occasionally they all agree on something. And one thing they agree upon is that suffering, both deserved and undeserved, is an inevitable part of life. For some people, it can feel like the only part. Religion itself is, among being many other things too, one of mankind's most concerted attempts to respond to that suffering. But even if you aren't religious, there's a question all of us need to answer. What do we fill our lives with to offset the suffering of being human? What collection of tasks or responsibilities or persons or beliefs do we take upon ourselves to not only counterbalance the suffering, but to outweigh it? and outweigh it in a sustainable and long-lasting manner over time. Or in another phrase, what makes it all worth it? What is our reason for living? Nietzsche was right. He who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. And not just bear it, but enjoy it. And the religions of the world offer many different ways to both bear and enjoy life. There are, of course, non-religious ways of finding such meaning as well. In fact, Nietzsche, who predicted much of the loss of religious faith that occurred in Europe, said that in order to compensate for the massive loss of individual meaning that would occur, people would need to learn to create their own values and value systems and hold themselves accountable to them. Nietzsche admitted it was a very difficult task, and labeled the person who could accomplish such a thing as Ubermensch, or Overman. This idea was later stolen and twisted by the Nazis during the run-up to the Second World War, but the original idea is very useful to understand. In a certain sense, the two most surefire pathways to acquiring the necessary meaning to offset the suffering of life are to either 1. be a faithful and practicing religious believer, or 2. be the kind of overman Nietzsche described and create your own purpose. Both have their advantages and disadvantages, and neither are easy. But these two paths can be friends instead of rivals. Indeed, it is my belief in their potential friendship that led to the creation of this episode, Today, I hope to tell you a little about the Ubermensch side of things, and how you can apply it even if you're religious too. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist and neurologist who wrote a book you should absolutely read called Man's Search for Meaning, was a great admirer of Nietzsche, even though he often disagreed with him. Combining Nietzsche's ideas with the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard's, he developed the ideas of Ubermensch and finding a why to characterize life into a school of psychotherapy called logotherapy. Frankel was a Holocaust survivor, and certainly knew what it was like to need a very large why to deal with one of the most horrifying hows history has ever seen. Logotherapy comes from the Greek word logos, a word which is perhaps the most important single term in all of Western thought, a word which can roughly translate to something like universal divine reason. The major premise of logotherapy is that the desire to find deep meaning in life is mankind's primary driving force. For those familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Frankel's logotherapy changes the position of self-actualization from being at the top of a pyramid to being the center of a beating heart. The hope and claim of logotherapy is that by the discovery of a sufficiently deep source of meaning and a sufficient dedication to pursuing that meaning once it is discovered, 
Anxiety, depression, neurosis, and many other forms of negative psychological state can be positively treated. A therapist who is fond of logotherapy might recommend a hobby or joining a club or taking on a new responsibility or seeking a new relationship in addition to prescribing an antidepressant. The idea being that the medication addresses very important symptoms, but depending on the specific patient might not address the cause. And logotherapy is all about the cause. Indeed, it is about finding our cause. Logotherapy has three essential principles by which it presents itself. One, life is intrinsically meaningful, and even the most horrific circumstances are imbued with meaning which is discoverable. Two, our main motivation for continuing to live is our desire and will to discover meaning in life and to find the deepest meanings we can. Three, we possess the freedom to discover the meaning in everything we do and experience, including experiences which are unchangeable and painful. Beyond these three general principles, Frankel also said that we find meaning through three primary methods. One, by creating a work or doing a deed. Two, by experiencing something or encountering someone. And three, by the attitude we take towards unavoidable suffering. Frankel described these methods as follows. One, by creating a work or doing a deed. Two, by experiencing something or encountering someone. And three, by the attitude we take towards unavoidable suffering. Frankel stated further, quote, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of all human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any set of circumstances, end quote. However, something important to note is that Frankel, who again was a Holocaust camp survivor, held that while suffering can have meaning, that it rarely does unless the first two sources of meaning aren't available. Frankel did not believe people should seek suffering for meaning, but that when faced with it in an unavoidable way, that meaning could still be found, and that choosing to see it was possible. So then, it is well and good to speak of finding our own purpose in life and discovering the personal meaning of our own existence, but this is extremely difficult. People spend their whole lives desperately struggling to find the meaning of their life, to discover their own purpose, and find what they are meant to be and to do. Many of us never find it, and for those who do, it can take years and many, many failed attempts. So how do we go about the quest of finding our purpose in life, our raison d'etre, or reason for being, as the French would put it? I began this episode by mentioning Japan, and it is to Japan we must now return. The Japanese cultural spirit is sometimes characterized by a form of dedication that leaves us Westerners, or at least me, in a state of awe. As a modern example, during one of the first meetings of the Toyota Car Company, the founder, Kichiro Toyota, presented his business plan and said, quote, In a hundred years, Toyota will be the greatest car company in the world. To put it lightly, Americans just don't think that way. To look 100 years out and then dedicate ourselves completely to such a vision is alien to our still often pragmatic here and nowism. Still, Japanese philosophy understands dedication and it also understands purpose. Thus, we come to ikigai, a form of reasoning I submit will be of extreme assistance to anyone seeking meaning or their own purpose in life. 
The term is composed of two Japanese words, iki, which means life or alive, and kai, sometimes pronounced gai, which can mean many things, including effect, result, fruit of, worth from, or even use for. Together, the word ikigai translates to something like reason for living. But ikigai is not just reason for living, it is also the motivating force inside us to continue living out that meaning once we've found it. It is the thing that sustains and motivates someone to dedicate their entire lives to something. Like boxing, in the case of Buster Douglas, or engineering, like Kichiro Toyota. Ikigai can be general or extremely specific, such as those in Japan who spend their entire lives training at Iaijutsu, which is the art of drawing a sword from its sheath with blinding speed. But fortunately, the idea of Ikigai as it has been developed over time has taken on a set of characteristics that can help you find what yours is. A criterion of sorts to help you distinguish and evaluate possibilities until you've found your own Ikigai. It's worth noting that Ikigai was popularized in the 60s and 70s after Meiko Kamiya, who was a famous Japanese psychiatrist, wrote her book On the Meaning of Life. However, the book hasn't really been translated into English at this point, and so please understand that what we are about to discuss is being relayed mostly secondhand and may not be the exact original intent of some aspects of Ikigai. But despite a lack of complete English translation, the idea of Ikigai became very popular in the West as well, and was co-opted by plenty of Western corporations and well-being groups interested in implementing it. As such, Ikigai is most often used in the West in a career or vocational sense, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Also, the original term was often used in the sense of finding your role within a society, while more modern interpretations have been centered around personal growth and fulfillment. Thus, what is or isn't, quote, real Ikigai is a subject of some debate between its adherents. But here is what we have, at least in the West, and it's still extremely useful. The most common and easiest way to see the criterion of Ikigai is simply to look it up online and hit images. Charts and diagrams detailing its various guidelines are easy to see and understand, but I shall detail them here anyway. When trying to find your Ikigai, your reason for living, it is recommended that you find something which satisfies the following four criteria. It must be something you are good at, something you love, something which the world needs, and something which you can be rewarded for doing, whether that reward is monetary or otherwise. If you can find something you're good at, like doing, that people want and will reward you for, then that is something that could be your reason for living. For example, something you are good at and love to do might be just a passion, Something you are good at or which the world needs and can be paid for might be a career, while something that you love and which the world needs but which you do not accept payment for might be a personal mission. But none of those things alone might be considered ikigai. The aim is to find something which is truly all for. Look at what you like, what you do well, what people around you want, and what they offer to get it. See if you can start to bring these things together and give them a try. Much of the process is trial and error, based around what loosely interests and inspires you. 
Here is a made-up example of how something like this might happen in the modern United States today, and what the process of seeking your ikigai could look like. Let's say you really like coffee, and you've always been good at making things with your hands, so you currently work as a welder. For fun, one day you decide to try and make a coffee pot for yourself using your welding skills. You enjoy it a lot and try making a few for your friends. They like them too, and you consider trying to start a small business. However, you discover very quickly that you don't enjoy running a business and that there's far too much paperwork. So you give up that idea, but get further into the history of coffee and discover its roots in the Middle East, and learn that there are many traditional metal coffee pots and implements which have been used for hundreds of years, such as those in Turkey. You order some of them and discover you like using them much more than their modern equivalents and use them for your coffee instead. You'd like to try making one of these pots for yourself, but it goes beyond your welding skill. So you do some research and find there's someone in your town who practices blacksmithing. You learn the basics to try and make some of the traditional coffee-making implements you've learned about. It's hard, but you finally figure out how to do it. It feels extremely fulfilling to use one of your coffee makers in this way, and decide you might as well use coffee beans from that region of the world as well, and do a little more research. This leads you to an obsession with trying coffee from all different parts of the world, and you tell your friends all about it. They start asking you for advice on coffee, and when you don't know the answers, you start to look them up. Soon, a friend mentions that you should start a YouTube channel or a podcast about coffee, and you give it a shot. Your video editing skills aren't great, but you know a lot of information by this point, and you start to get a little bit of an audience. You find you really like teaching other people about what you've learned and explaining how different coffee implements work. Soon, you start showing off things you've purchased as well as things you've made, something you've gotten much better at over time. This leads you to doing your first product review, and later an in-depth video of you making one of your own coffee pots. Your skill at metalwork and your long interest in coffee makes you very good at being able to distinguish the quality of the products you review and the things you make are getting better and more beautiful over time. To your surprise, you discover you really like doing these product reviews, and your viewers love seeing step-by-step -step videos of how you make your coffee and your coffee pots. You change the direction of the YouTube channel towards those ends, your audience grows, and so does your passion for doing the reviews. After a year or so, a few companies start reaching out to you and sending you products to review and start to sponsor your channel. You open a Patreon page, and people begin to support you that way as well. In another year, you're able to quit your day job and focus completely on your channel. And that's exactly what you do, more fulfilled than ever before. Thus, what started as a simple taste for coffee and some welding skill led to a discovery of Ikigai, a YouTube channel where you make coffee, make coffee implements, and review coffee products for a small but dedicated and appreciative audience. This is something you like, something you're good at, something people want, and something they reward you for with money, views, comments, and attention, which is perhaps our most limited resource. Now, this is just one example, and maybe a slightly glamorous one that's colored by my own interests in media, though not in coffee. But it's easier to do something digital like that now than ever before. In the end, everyone needs something to get them up in the morning, and Ikigai is a great way to discover or refine your own reasons. Do that, and the effects of logotherapy might begin to change your life in a way you don't expect. 
even if it takes several years to find something meaningful, those years will pass regardless. And besides, couldn't we all use a little more reason to get up each day? I'm Dean Delp, and this has been Logotherapy and Ikigai on the Modernist Monastery. <laughs>